Hey, everybody, and welcome to Beyond the Breakers, a podcast about shipwrecks, loss, and lessons learned from maritime disasters. I am one of your hosts. My name is Tanner. You already know my voice if you've listened to the show before. Uh, to all of our listeners, first, I just want to say thank you for your support. Taylor and I are both really happy to be making something that people are enjoying. Uh, like we've said previously, you know, we love interacting on social media. So let's list those off here. We're on Twitter at Beyond underscore Breakers. We're on Instagram at Beyond the Breakers Podcast. Our email, beyondthebreakers at gmail.com. And we do also have a Patreon for the show. That's patreon.com slash beyondthebreakers. Uh, we want to keep the show ad-free always. Those are the types of shows we like to listen to. That's the kind of show we'd like to make. Uh, so money from the Patreon just kind of goes into keeping the quality of the show where we want it to be uh, and possibly increasing it as time goes on. That goes to things like web hosting fees, uh, recording equipment, stuff like that. Uh, so if you think what we do here is worth a few bucks, you can throw those at us over on Patreon. So while I'm talking about us, I should introduce the other half of the podcast. Taylor. Taylor, how's it going? Pretty good. How's everybody out there? And how are you? I am doing just peachy. The weather here is... It's like someone just flipped the fall switch and it's starting to feel <laughs> that way. Um, so yeah, right. we, we've been in like the 60s. Uh, some mornings in the 50s. I've been really loving it. I've had windows open. We've been able to give our AC a rest for the first time in months. Nice. That's how it's been here, too. It was definitely nice to have the windows open watching football yesterday. Yeah, speaking of, speaking of stuff we've been watching, reading, <laughs> listening to, what else have you been doing? Uh, yesterday was basically the first real week, like a real Saturday of college football. So pretty much from like noon till about midnight, that's <laughs> about all that I really did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was I, fun. It was some good games. It was unfortunate that the Badgers didn't want to score very many points. It looked like a 1920s football game for a while. Yeah. But um, it was fun seeing Georgia beat Clemson. Anytime Clemson loses, I can get behind that. Yeah, it was a good day. That's just one of those things that for, for fall in the United States, having college football Saturdays is is just a, it's just a beautiful thing. So I'm, I'm happy it's back as well. Mm, for sure. It's, uh, it's fun. Yeah. Let's see. On my end... I did my fair share of football watching yesterday as well. Uh, I'll say that. I guess in addition to that, I've I've been kind of on a little bit of an upswing with reading recently. I think that's what I talked about last week too. Started reading a book called The Unwomanly Face of War. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's by Svetlana Alexievich. It's a series of sort of interviews, primary source type stuff from women's perspectives about the Second World War. Interesting. Um, or specifically Soviet women. Uh, so those fighting on the front lines and those doing other things also. So yeah, it's a, it's an interesting read. Kind of depressing. Yeah. But, uh, it's, it's a good read. Definitely sounds interesting. In addition to that, I did also want to shout out a, a podcast that I've been really listening to a lot. I say shout out as if this will help them in any way, but they're a pretty, <laughs> pretty big podcast. Uh, it's called The Loremen. Uh-huh. Uh, it's hosted by Alistair Beckett-King and Jim Shakeshaft. If you're interested in things like folklore, folk tales, anything like that, I highly, highly, highly recommend this podcast, The Loremen. They kind of tackle a different local legend. From what I've listened through so far, it's all been within England or the British Isles. And they they each kind of pick one each week. They go through and they discuss it. 
it's a it's a humor oriented podcast, but the the folk tales that they're covering are you know real local legends, which I really enjoy hearing about. Anything with with folklore, legends, uh, ghost stories, stuff like that, I'm a huge huge fan of. So I've been I've been devouring that podcast recently. So if you're interested yeah. in that kind of thing, I would highly recommend checking out the Lore Men. It sounds pretty interesting. All right, so let's jump into our episode. Actually, I guess the first media thing I mentioned is is probably closer in relevance to to what we're talking about today. Actually, uh, in mm-hmm. dealing with Russia. So this episode today is going to take us to the Sea of Okhotsk. If you're looking at a map, so this is that this is that body of water. It's just north of Japan. It's kind of surrounded by the Kamchatka Peninsula on one side, the Kuril Islands and Sakhalin Island, and then part of mainland Russia also. Mm-hmm. Anyone who, who plays Risk will, will know this body of water uh, because <laughs> right. of Kamchatka. Uh, so we're, we're going over there. We're going to be talking about fishing. So the Sea of Okhotsk has a very long history as a fishing and whaling hotspot. Uh, and in this episode, we will be focusing on a fishing vessel called the Dalny Vostok, in English, the Far East. But I'll just be calling it the Dalny Vostok. So does Vostok mean East? Uh, it does. Vostok it does. It does. Dalny is like far or deep in some connotations. Uh, and then Vostok, the, the East, like Vladivostok. We should mention that you're what? You have a decent knowledge of the Russian language? A decent one is, is what I would say. Decent. Primarily with reading. Dalny Vostok was built in 1963 by the Chornomorsky Zavod, uh, which is the Black Sea shipyard. So this is a very famous shipyard uh, in Soviet and post-Soviet countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's located in what's today Nikolaev, Ukraine. Um, so this you have to be careful about specifying what's Russia and what's Ukraine and what somewhat are today. Right? Somewhat. <laughs> And Ukraine, or the Ukraine, is also something to be careful of for English speakers. Right. Um, but yeah, anyway, Black Sea Shipyard is actually pretty famous for, for some of the ships that it's built. Some of the most famous ships in the Russian, even the, the pre-Soviet, the Tsarist Russian Navy, were built uh, in these shipyards. Interesting. Uh, probably right now, one of the most famous ships they have sailing is the uh, the Admiral Kuznetsov. The, oh, okay. The, the, yeah, the, know, aircraft, the aircraft carrier. The Burns internally a <laughs> yeah, lot. Yeah, that it catches one. on fire a lot. <laughs> yeah, yes, I believe that is the one. Um, so yeah, this is a well-known shipyard. They obviously build military ships, but they also do build commercial uh, and, and fishing type ships. And that is where the Dalnivostok was born, the Black Sea <laughs> shipyards. Moving on here, she was originally built as a whaling factory ship. Okay. She's under the classification BATM. It's from the Russian Bashoi Avtonomny Trawler Marazilny, a a large autonomous freezer trawler. Auto- it, you see autonomous a lot. I don't love that translation. I would probably use self-contained is probably, I think, a better translation. Oh, to- I was just saying it could do all the processing right. and uh, everything. Uh, to me, autonomous makes it sound like you don't need a crew. Right, it, yeah. It, I, guess, I guess like the modern kind of definition of autonomous is... And slightly moved. It's like a it's like a Roomba out there, just like just right, doing just it all. Up fish and yeah. For the rest of the episode, we'll just be using the term reefer trawler uh, mostly in this okay. episode. The term reefer, I guess, we should talk about for our English speaking audience. Something that has different meanings in different situations. Here, we're just talking about something that is refrigerated or has freezing capabilities. 
<laughs> uh, you'll you'll hear the term also with you know like they use it in train cars too, right? Trains, trucks, yeah, yeah. any anything that's transporting stuff that's frozen. You'll see this term reefer. I think some companies use them a lot, maybe more than they should, and they become addicted to reefer. <laughs> Madness, if you will. <laughs> so the idea behind these ships, this this sort of subset of ship, is that you can do all aspects of the catching, processing, and in some cases even the like the packaging and the canning right. parts of this is done on board. This is just a big factory. Uh, yeah, this is not what I was thinking it was when you said of like a fishing ship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was I was kind of the same way. So so to do all this stuff, these ships have to be obviously pretty big. You have a ton of stuff going on. You've got tons of machines. You need a lot of space for all this storage. So in the case of the Donleval stock that we'll be talking about today, as 104 meters long, that is about 341 feet, mm-hmm. and 16 meters or 52 feet wide. Yeah, so that's a decent-sized vessel. This is, this is a pretty big ship. This is not the type of shipping, or I'm sorry, fishing boat that we've talked about before. For comparison, the last time we talked about a fishing vessel was the Scandies Rose. Scandies Rose was only about 30 meters long. So right. about a third of the, the, the size of this ship. Again, long story short, we're talking about a, an actual ship. This is not like a fishing boat that we'll be discussing in this. Right. this is not, a re- not the perfect storm. Yeah, this is a real big ship. In 2014, uh, oh, also I should point out that she was not originally built under the name Dalnivostok. She was originally named the Stenda, or possibly Stenda, named after a a city in, I believe it was Lithuania, but it's a historically German city, so I'm guessing Stenda is the proper pronunciation. Moving on, though, uh, in 2014, the ship was bought by Magellan LLC, or Again, lots of translation stuff in this. Probably Magellan, I'm, I'm guessing, is how the company would say it. I'm going to be saying Magellan, uh, a Vlad- <laughs> Vladivostok-based seafoods and freight business. So at this seafoods point, seafoods and freight, seafoods and freight. So you know, you you have to you have to diversify <laughs> your portfolio here. I guess you figure like, I've got this boat, so I might as well throw some cargo. On I too. I guess those those two things do dovetail together. I guess somewhat. You you need to you need More to transport. Than one would expect. Yeah. You need to transport the seafoods. Uh, its home port became the town of Nevelsk on Sakhalin Island. So again, Sakhalin Island is the island. It's technically part of the Japanese archipelago. It's just north of Hokkaido. So it's that big long island out there in the western Pacific. So by this point, Dalnivostok had also been converted for purely fishing rather than whaling purposes. Mm-hmm. This is one part of the story where I'm just a little bit confused by the timeline. I believe this conversion happened in 1989. Uh, does it because, get a little mixed up? Well, one of the Russian sources that I use, one of the articles, mentions this as the year that the ship was launched. Despite the, oh. despite the fact that what we just said, you know, it was built in 1963. So they're using launch instead of like relaunch. Or right. And something. so I'm, I'm guessing that just means it was launched in that capacity in 89. That's, okay. that's what I'm assuming. That's, that's probably where the confusion comes from. I'm guessing. Right. So anyway, we're, we'll, we'll go with that. And if anyone listening with the knowledge of the Russian shipbuilding industry can correct us, Please, please send us an email. You can send that in Russian or English, and we'll make it work. Uh, That kind of leads me into a note I wanted to make about 
the episode as a whole. Just a quick note about numbers, dates, really any sort of information that we say in this episode. Using all these various sources, uh, some of them English language, some of them Russian, so various languages, uh, and for other reasons that we'll get into, there's a lot of conflicting numbers, dates, and times in this story. Even something as simple as the date that it happened on, uh, in some mainly English sources, you'll see one, in some you'll see another. I'm assuming the time difference plays into that, <laughs> but it gets confusing reading all these uh, different sources. It's quite possible I'm... that during the course of the episode, some of the numbers, especially that, that I mentioned, maybe don't add up, maybe don't make sense. We're looking big picture here. I'm shocked that a vessel built in the Soviet Union and then like carried over <laughs> into like modern Russia doesn't have good records kept on it. Yeah, basically in this episode, look at just look at the forest and not <laughs> at the, the trees. trees. All right, so let's get into our story here. So we're going to talk about the incident itself. I structured this episode sort of by necessity a little bit differently. We're going to talk about the incident very quickly and then sort of talk about how things play out after that, kind of jump around in time. My primary Russian language source for this uh, was a RIA Novosti article by Alexander Krylov. All right. So jumping right into the thick of it, in the early morning hours of April 2nd, ships operating in the Sea of Okhotsk in the vicinity of Dalny Vostok picked up a distress signal indicating that Dalny Vostok was sinking. However, several sources mentioned that no formal SOS call was sent out. This is mentioned multiple times uh, in, in mm -hmm. kind of the aftermath and the investigation. So it appears that this was sent out maybe to vessels in the area, but not to any sort of authority. I, I don't, yeah, I don't exactly know yeah, the ins and outs there. Uh, so the first ship on scene was a ship called the Granit, but literally within minutes of her getting on scene to where she can help, the Dalnivostok is already entirely underwater so like this happens quickly like whatever is going on on the vostok like it it's sudden this seems to be very quick or at least once they realize that it can't be saved things happen very quick there's details to indicate that there probably was a known problem before okay but they're just fighting it and they don't say anything until they're almost to the point of like no return finding it is one way to describe it well, we'll see. Uh, so I've seen estimates ranging from 15 to 30 minutes for how long it took the ship to sink from the time that this initial problem was noticed. 15 minutes is, is pretty fast for a big ship like this to sink. Yeah, that's not a lot of time. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see. Uh, ships on scene, they started to pick up survivors who had made it into the water. Uh, however, at least 15 of the crew never made it off the ship being trapped in the engine room as it flooded. It's always... It's always the engine room. It's always the end. Never, never go in the engine room for any reason, <laughs> basically, is the, the lesson I've learned from this show. It does seem to be the first thing that floods, I, su I assume, because it's like generally the lowest spot in the ship. But right. like, it does seem to be the first thing that always floods. Uh, in the aftermath of the sinking. So at this point, we're kind of speed running through this. So the ship has sunk. Survivors are being pulled from the water, mainly by those other fishing vessels that arrive on scene. Uh, but in the aftermath of the sinking, 23 vessels total participated in the search for survivors, along with three aircraft from the Ministry of Emergency Situations. Emergency Situations, that's like that. That's a cool name. I'm going to read the full name just because I love like Russian and Soviet organization names. Definitely not going to read it in Russian because it defies <laughs> my abilities. 
full name of this organization is the Ministry of the Russian Federation for Civil Defense, Emergencies, and Elimination of Consequences of Natural Disasters. I love that. That actually cool. sounds like something from Borat. It does. Uh, <laughs> or anything from the Soviet Union, really. Um, <laughs> from what I was reading, I didn't know a lot about this before. It seems to me they have the capabilities a bit like the Coast Guard, the National Guard, and a bit of FEMA all sort of rolled into all rolled one. Into one. So kind of a general response. Like just like or, a disaster response team, essentially. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they you'll see things like this, you know, shipwrecks, plane crashes, but then also like natural disasters that they'll respond to. Interesting. Um, so 63 people were able to be rescued from the water. 57 bodies were recovered. Yeah, I would assume you don't have a lot of time in the water. Like I would assume this is very cold. Absolutely correct. Uh, April in the Sea of Okhotsk is not tropical exactly. <laughs> so an additional between 12 and 15 again depending on the sources and when these sources come out 12 to 15 are listed as missing although chances of survival I'm quoting here chances of survival were minimal even if they were able to put on their wetsuits interesting and I put a little bit of emphasis on the term wetsuit here in the russian sources the term uses gidrokostyum Literally in English, a hydro suit. That's just what they call mm-hmm. a wetsuit. But again, that's just what they call a wetsuit, like a diving suit. Something you would wear while you're diving or surfing or snorkeling or something like that. Right. This is not a survival suit, necessarily. Right, not like some of the other ones we've talked about where you actually have like some sort of like insulation and protection and floating abilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so from, from both the Russian and some English sources using this term, I'm assuming that that's all that these were was wetsuits. Uh, not anything like those things we talked about in Scandi's Rose that will keep right. you alive for four hours uh, out in these freezing conditions. Um, so if all you have is a wetsuit, obviously that's not going to keep you alive very long uh, in freezing or sub-freezing temperatures. Uh, hence the low expectations for these search and rescue efforts. Uh, essentially, right. essentially, anyone who is not pulled out of the water right away, you can kind of essentially assume has died. Right. Um, and yeah, on that note, no more survivors are found after those initial 63. So it really is like if, if you got picked up right away, you you, you might have been OK. But after that, forget. Yeah, that was that was kind of your only chance, it seems like here. Uh, so these survivors are taken aboard the vessel Andromeda, where they all receive first aid, primarily treatment for hypothermia. Right. Uh, again, water temperature is reported as being around freezing. Awesome. So now we get into the fun part of... Talking about what happened, we, mm-hmm. we sort of breeze through that part here, and we'll, we'll discuss a little bit more. So initial headlines and some sources indicated that the ship had struck ice or some other obstacle. So one of these official sources was Vladimir Markin, the press agent for the Russian Investigative Committee, mm-hmm. which handles responses to a pretty wide variety of incidents, kind of like that. Uh, organization we talked about earlier, they investigate pretty much anything big that needs to be investigated, like this. But the way that the ship went down really isn't consistent with this. And and this is something that's noted almost right away. As soon as this this comes out that the ship struck ice or an obstacle, people immediately sort of push back on that and say, that's not at all how this ship sank. So basically, like, they just picked an easy explanation that was just like, oh, it was ice, we couldn't help it. Right, and you make it go away again, basically. 
Yeah, and I'm draw- I'm painting with an extremely broad brush here, but reading through this and the way that things come out, to me, this this sort of strikes me as something like, I don't know, a ship sinks off the coast of California, and then you have someone in Washington, D.C. immediately making a statement about what happened to it. Mm-hmm. And there's not, all of the facts have not been found yet. And it's just kind of issuing the most likely or some, some possible scenario that could have happened to it just to give right. people an explanation. I don't know. Right. So again, there was pushback on that almost right away. Um, so one Russian maritime navigator was being interviewed. I think this was, he was being interviewed by TAS, the news organization. Uh, he said, quote, there are no icebergs or heavy ice in the Okhotsk Sea. I'm Interesting. Get- so it's like a known fact, but like that, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm guessing from this quote, he, I'm assuming it's, there's not really a lot of context given. I'm assuming he's talking about either this time of year or specifically like big, huge, free floating ice that would be a problem. Like he mentioned specifically right. icebergs. Uh, obviously there is ice in the Sea of Okhotsk, but Nothing really that should be a problem for a ship like this. Right. Like they're making it sound like this is the Titanic or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we'll talk about why <laughs> that might be. <laughs> uh, definitely. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's actually a really good comparison. Um, so it, it helps to think about something like the Titanic in terms of how it sank. So there's all those, those famous visual depictions you know, in, in movies and uh, paintings and drawings and stuff like that of the Titanic. And that very, very famous shot of it you know we we know it hit an iceberg we know it struck ice we know what happened to it and there's that very very famous image of the titanic's stern you know sticking up out of the air you can see it's or into the air you can see its propellers uh, up in the air very very famous this very sharp angle mm-hmm. because again it, yeah. it it ran into an iceberg so of course it's going to sink bow first because that's what's flooding Right, that's where yeah, that's where the entry entry point is for if, the water. If you had collided head on or more or less head on with an iceberg, that's that's how your ship would probably go down, and that's not what happened here. Interesting. <laughs> so survivors and other officials almost immediately told different stories. Uh, the acting governor of Sakhalin, I'm going to mess up his name, uh, Aleg Kajumyako, he said, given the fact that the tragedy occurred quickly and unexpectedly. And the ship was registered and met all technical requirements. I think there was a violation of rules when it comes to overload and balancing of the vessel. And so this is, again, the acting governor of Sakhalin. I guess it's technically an oblast. I don't know what classification that's under. But someone who, while not probably directly involved in the fishing industry, probably knows a thing or two about fishing ships, just given of where he is uh, in charge of. Yeah, I would imagine, like, the people he represents and whatever, mm-hmm. like, are very connected to the fishing industry. Right, someone who probably knows more than the average governor about that right. kind of thing. So according to one crewman, uh, Evgeny Vitrikos, Vitrikos, I don't know, I apologize, Evgeny. Speaking with Tas on April 7th, a few days after the incident, I'm going to be quoting from him. Just a note here, I'm quoting directly from a Tas English article, so a Russian news agency, but writing in English. So this is not my translation. So some of the terms might sound, I guess, a bit off. He says, The ship had already developed a list, as there was no fuel in the tanks, yet we tried to have another trawl net of fish. The captain was greedy, wished to make as much more money as he could. With fishing vessels, we've talked about this before. 
the mm-hmm. idea of something getting overloaded because either the captain or the crew just wants to make more money. Right. Yeah. Like they have incentive. It's not a new to concept. The vessel. Yeah. So another, I say another, this might be the same crew member. I don't know. This was from a, a video after he was taken for his, his medical care. This is from Russia today. So again, possibly the same crew member. He says, quote, we noticed that there was a lurch. A, a quick pause here. The word lurch is going to come up a few times. I believe the word that they probably want here is list instead of okay. instead of like a quick violent action. I believe they're talking about a list that the ship is beginning to list. Right. So he says, we noticed that there was a lurch on the boat. We were empty. There was nothing to counterbalance. And we also had taken many fish aboard. This factored into the lurching of the ship. There was nothing to compensate with. The lurch increased more and more. So there we have a crewman who is, is pointing out the fact that we don't have any ballast at this point. We are overloaded with fish, and we have mm-hmm. no ballast. Well, they also talked about one of the fuel tanks being empty. Is that right? Yes. So that's, that's one thing that came up here. The idea that the fuel tanks had a, a minimum amount of fuel they were allowed to have in them because they're sort of serving a double function. Of course, you need the fuel to run the ship, but that fuel is also acting partially as ballast. Right. So the, I believe it was something like something like 20%. I could be way off here. They basically were not allowed to get below that, and that's where they were at this point. They were well below the minimum. So continuing from this same survivor, he says, There was such stormy weather. As a result, the ship finally started to keel over. The unchangeable process had begun. <laughs> it was very hard at that time to look at it. Uh, and in the video... You can see this on YouTube. I'll share a link to it. In the video, he starts looking up at the ceiling at this point, And he continues. It was really like the Titanic. People just fell down. You look above, they just fly down and scream. It was a horror. Um, so he yeah, he's pointing that, out, crazy. obviously, like this pretty radical angle that this thing starts to sink at. Right. So this thing's rolling over essentially as it's sinking. Yeah, there's some there's some graphical representations of it. So think of it this way. Sort of to summarize that and the the findings later, you have a ship that's already uh, one of the one of the articles referred to it as being packed to the eyeballs with fish. <laughs> so it's already full. They should at this point, you know, they've they've done what they can do. I'm assuming they should be sort of on their way back to port here uh, because they're full. They can't bring any more stuff onto this vessel. They're running low on fuel. So that contributes to their ballast situation. And there doesn't seem to be any other ballast system in place, or at least in use properly here, um, mm. as, as it's supposed to be. And then they go for this one last haul of fish. So they drop their, their trawling net again. Right. And they get another full net. So now you have this unbalanced ship that's already loaded, and now it has this extra burden that it's dragging behind it. So essentially what starts to happen the ship is getting the stern of the ship is getting pulled into the water. So it's, it's sort of listing back and to the left. I want to say to, to, to port. It's <laughs> like in uh, Seinfeld back. Yeah, that's to the say. Left. So but, that, so it is like a weird angle that's not going down bow first. Like you normally would expect, like it's, it's coming backwards and rolling to its left side. Yeah. It's think of it like uh, being in a pool and someone is laying on a raft 
and you come mm-hmm. up behind them on that raft, and you try to get on the raft with them. It's going to mm-hmm. pull the raft under. As the raft goes under, that person's going to go under, and you're both going to go down with it. And right. that's kind of what's happening here, is this full net of fish begins to pull it down. As the stern starts to flood, basically, the more water gets into the ship, the lower it's going to get, the worse it's going to get. So yeah, this is one of those sort of situations where the worse it gets, the worse it's going to. Right. Yeah, it's a, it kind of like is a cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some great video representations of this that I'll share. This is why we have that radical angle that everyone's talking about, saying it's like the Titanic. This thing is just getting dragged under. And then once, right. the, once the stern's fully submerged, it's just going basically straight down. That makes sense. So let's look at some of the aftermath and findings of this. One of the major things that came up in this that sort of, I don't want to say that it heightened focus on it, because I don't know, I don't know internally if this affected anything in terms of uh, Russian laws and regulations, but it definitely raised an awareness of it outside the country uh, in terms of illegal labor in Russia, uh, specifically mm-hmm. in the fishing industry. So if we look at a breakdown of the crew members, there was 132 total crew. Of those, 78 were Russian. 42 of them were from Myanmar. Interesting. Uh, and there were various others. I don't have the specific numbers here. Uh, some from Ukraine, some from Latvia, and some from Vanuatu. I think that's how you pronounce that. Huh. So they did have like a fairly diverse crew. It wasn't just Russian. Yeah, rel- relatively diverse, and we'll kind of talk about why here. So going back to that first survivor that we quoted from here's a little bit more about him talking about when the the incident really starts to kick into high gear he says quote no alarm was sounded on the ship i heard some noise and stepped out into the corridor burmese were running either way all wearing survival suits they knew where to find them it was illegal crew members who loaded the gear when we were in korea the suits were too few there were 90 of them for 131 people on board. So that's interesting that like the foreign workers knew where the gear was stowed. Yeah. So that, uh, again, that's, that's not my translation. That's the, the translated article that I was reading. But also like they seem to already know there's a big problem that requires suits. Yeah. The, why, there's a lot. Why doesn't the rest of the crew know that? There's a lot going on here in terms of what you can, what you can sort of glean from that interview. There's the issue that you, first of all, have this large number of illegal or unregistered or, un, or undocumented crew members. You have them doing these, these high-leverage jobs, like stowing emergency equipment, that you know ideally everyone should know where that is. Right. Uh, you have them doing that, and then you also have them being some of the first to sort of realize that there's a problem. There's a lot of interesting things going on here. Another thing to look at, though is the numbers. We'll come back to this in a second. He says the suits were too few. There were 90 of them for 131 people. Keep those numbers in mind. 131. Uh, So I'm going to go to an article from the Myanmar Times, written on April 3rd, 2015. Because again, 42 of the crew aboard this were from Myanmar. Right. So far, just 13 of the Myanmar sailors have been found alive. Myanmar authorities said it was extremely unlikely the Myanmar migrants were legally employed by Magellan. Quoting from an official here, Myanmar does not send workers to fishing boats. If they're illegal, they won't get insurance or compensations. It is a problem. So again, that's not a a new issue for illegal labor. 
that's right. one of the downsides of it is that you, you aren't going to get the same protection as we see in this case. Migrants can work aboard cargo ships, oil tankers, or cruise ships. But industry officials also said it was very rare to send migrant workers to Russia. Interesting. So the, the plot thickens. Not, not only are they not sending these workers to work on fishing ships, they're not sending them to Russia at all. So, yeah, so it's it's almost like how did these guys get there? Because this is like not at all where a you'd expect to find them or the industry that you would find them in. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple of things. Obviously, they they could have been in Russia in the first place. But also remember, I believe I mentioned this in one of the quotes that they had previously been in South Korea. It's entirely possible that these workers were picked up in South Korea and right. sort of signed on that way. That's pure speculation. I I have not seen that anywhere. That's just me thinking of the last port that they were in. Also, Magellan LLC was not among the 161 international companies registered with the Myanmar Maritime Administration. Um, so we we don't send people to this industry. We don't send people to this country. We don't have people working for this company. Yeah, so basically no reason that they should be there yes. at all. Uh, so the director of the, I'm assuming Maritime Department, I just have department here, U Tui Mint, I apologize, to everyone from Myanmar for that pronunciation. Uh, He says, we cannot give any guarantee that they were not recruited by an unregistered company or fake agency. It often happens here. Hmm. So this is a known issue that, yes, I mean, we might have people working places and we don't know where they are or how they got there. Right. So agencies told Myanmar Times they were not aware of any firms sending migrants to Russian vessels on or off the books. But an experienced sailor said he frequently encounters migrants who pay brokers to arrange informal employment on fishing trawlers, a process that leaves them vulnerable to exploitation and human traffickers. So this is sort of like a like under the table deal, like even beyond just like looking the other way. Like yeah, this seems like it's like a this is like a under the floorboards that are under the table sort of situation. This, this almost feels yeah like it gets into like human trafficking and stuff. Very much so. More and than more than employment. Exactly. And that's, I mean, it really highlights the, not, not just in this particular situation, but really any sort of situation where you're in this sort of kind of shadow employment, it's, it's, it's an issue, I mean, first and foremost for the people involved. You know, you wouldn't be doing this if you weren't desperate, basically. Mm-hmm. You didn't need to be doing this. And it's also extremely dangerous when these things are, you know, unregistered and unregulated uh, because basically anything can happen to you. You also have no way of vetting the competence of the crew that you're like picking up. Mm-hmm. You have no idea if these guys are trained or not. Yeah, it's a it's a bad situation for everyone. Also, as a detail, all of the Myanmar workers were listed as engineers or processors. So they are listed. They're on you know rosters, registers. It's not like they don't exist, um, mm-hmm. but in terms of how they got there is a bit shadowy. Um, so they're right. listed as engineers or processors. So just kind of a generic thing you could probably apply to almost any crew member if you needed to. Right. Moving on from that, that's that's one of the issues to talk about. The other one is obviously safety regulations and crew capacity. So earlier I mentioned uh, we talked about how there weren't enough of these wetsuits for everyone, saying that there was only 90 of them for like 130 people. As the Russian paper Komsomolskaya Pravda points out, I will also point out Komsomolskaya Pravda is considered basically a tabloid, but the term tabloid for Russian media doesn't have exactly the same connotation as it does in the United States. 
Interesting. They're they're, they're not different. They're not publishing stories about like Joe Pesci had a baby with an alien <laughs> stuff like that. It's just more in terms of the manner in which things are covered as it relates to the government line about things. So that kind of can classify something as a tabloid. From what I can see, I'm totally not an expert on Russian media, but that's kind of my idea here. Don't let the term tabloid, I guess, put an image in your head that is not necessarily accurate. Right. So Komsomolska Pravda says there were as many as 132 people on board. Even 100 people on a BATM is already tight. Right, because like, this is a big vessel, but it's not set up for people. It's set up for processing and canning fish. It, exactly. So kind of the standard number here uh, on a ship like this is 96, or at least the way that Dalnivostok was designed, 96 is sort of the listed crew capacity. But that survivor we quoted earlier, he noted that instead of the standard 96 beds, there were 131 Standard double bed cabins housed three Russian crew members each. And the five bed cabins, 15 Burmese. So you have these cabins designed for two people being used for three people. You have these cabins designed for five people being used for 15 crew members. Which, of course, has the immigrant workers. In it. Right. Of, of course. Because, again, we, we talk about this nebulous existence of these workers. What what are they going to do? Like complain to management or complain to their union rep? No, there's not a lot that they can do. So yeah, you can tell that on a cabin level, there's a lot of overcrowding. The ship is designed to hold 96 crew and we have 131 or 132 on board. A few more things here from the same article. Some of these irregularities with safety. We already talked about that term being, being loaded to the eyeballs uh, with 11, (laughs) with, was 1150 tons of Pollock. A lot of Pollock. That's a lot of Pollock. Uh, The ship had an insufficient number of lifeboats for the crew. Although the ship had been certified as seaworthy, the captain described it as a worn out old wreck in constant need of urgent repair. Hmm. That sounds more like the Lake Victoria vessel that we talked about. It does. It does. And then also that the abnormally high number of foreign crew indicated that they were underpaid illegal workers. So it, it's it, is that so it's not like a common practice for vessels to do this in this area. I'm taking. It doesn't seem like it, or at least it is not something that people talk about. But but again, in in this case, it it truly does seem out of the ordinary somewhat. I, I think because it seems like the captain's complaining about it, and it, if it was just like the business, then. I wouldn't think that they would complain about it. Mm-hmm. It's certainly something for him to complain about. And and again, I think that in this case, we sort of have those things dovetailing together where right. maybe, yes, it is totally normal to have this many illegal crewmen on your ship, but maybe it's not normal to also have, you know, almost 40 more crew than you should. Mm-hmm. Uh, if both of those things are coming together, you can see how that would cause problems. So again, this is just something that sort of raised a little bit of foreign awareness of this issue. In terms of what happened in the aftermath, I, I don't know that anything has. I, I know that relatively recently a new committee was formed to fight corruption, but I mean, good luck with that anywhere, I would say. Right, right. 
So do they have like a final cause or is the official explanation still that she hit ice? I don't know that a, a, an official cause was issued. I don't know if there's any sort of corollary to the NTSB. I'm sure there is. I wasn't able to find anything official that listed a cause of sinking. The accepted cause of sinking really is that it sank after being overloaded, unbalanced, and taking on water. Interesting. The, so, I mean, at the end of the day, this is just a very unregulated like industry, and this kind of happened. And if this doesn't happen, there's probably no eyes on this, but this happening is just bringing some attention mm-hmm. to, to what's going on here. Yeah, again, the the main reason for the, or the main explanation for the sinking, like we said, is, is that it was overloaded, unbalanced, and the fact that it sank so fast. If, right. If it had struck ice and ruptured the hull, it most likely wouldn't have gone down the way it did. Mm-hmm. From what I can tell, the consensus is that that's what happened. I don't think anyone still sticks to the theory that it struck yeah. ice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, like, clearly, this this is probably one of those where the lack of maintenance and lack of properly trained crew mm-hmm. kind of comes together to create a dangerous situation. One other detail here is that, so Magellan, this privately owned company, they did conduct, I think it was just like an internal audit. I don't think there was any sort of audit from the authorities necessarily. So who knows what that found or changed, if anything, probably nothing. Uh, Also, the government announced that the families of the dead would get a million rubles from state agencies. That sounds like a lot. It's not. I can't imagine that it is. I think it's like $17,000. I could do the conversion really quick. I'm literally sitting at a computer. <laughs> it's interesting that they give them money in that scenario. Right, and I think it it is a, yeah, it is a bit odd and it didn't seem necessarily like there was any sort of like litigation. It didn't seem like it was much of a battle necessarily. I think it was just kind of here we'll give you this. Um, I overestimated. A million rubles right now is about a little under $14,000. <laughs> so so like really not that much really not that much it's not considered i mean not that you can really put a number on a human life you know for, for their loved ones but it's definitely not fourteen thousand dollars yeah it, it's definitely more it's, than it's got to be higher and than it, that and that's in 2015 so I mean, it's a little bit more but not that much more mm-hmm. yeah so that's a that's an interesting detail of this also yeah it really is yeah i know this is an interesting one where like there's not like a reason like this is kind of one of those that's a little frustrating. It is. That it's so mod- it's so modern, but it feels old. Yeah, it's it's definitely definitely a frustrating one to episode, uh, to to research. It was fun to read all the different sources. It was challenging for sure. I'd like to do some more from Russia. There's lots that we could talk about. Yeah, and I think even though this isn't the most satisfying episode as far as wrapping it up with like causes and like what came out of it, by expanding awareness of these kind of things, it's the only way that you avoid it happening again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when, you know, I, I think that uh, Americans, we, we have almost a, an outsized knowledge of American fishing industries purely because of things like the discovery channel right. uh, and, and people that watch those things. Right. Uh, whereas like in other countries, we probably know almost nothing about it. So this was, this was fun to learn a little bit about the Russian fishing industry. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind, too, like, I would say the United States fishing industry is fairly, like, regulated, Mm -hmm. and it's still extremely dangerous. So you can imagine with maintenance not being done, with crew that you don't even know how they got there, you don't know if they've been trained, like, 
it's even, you're taking an even more dangerous situation and making it worse. Yeah, this is what can happen. We've talked about that several times about how this is a great example of even when you are following all the rules, fishing and really just being at sea is dangerous. It, there's inherent risk. And then when you add in things like this, not following safety precautions and conducting risky behavior, it's you're really making a recipe for disaster. Right, which that, that appears what's happened here. Yeah. And that's it. That is the story of the Dalny Vostok. Excellent. That's all I've got for us here. It's a good one to talk about. All right. So if you've got no other final thoughts here. uh, No, I think think we've got it all out there. I'll just say thank you all for listening. If you've made it with us this far, if you didn't quit in frustration uh, (laughs) halfway through the episode. So that being said, we'll be back next week with some more content for you. In the meantime, uh, just uh, take care and have a great week.